Thank you, Kevin. And good morning again. <laughs> Whatever you want to do, that's fine. This is really the first time I've preached in this church since I retired. I don't know if you're aware of that or not, but it is. And uh, I'm grateful to Pastor Tim for asking me. And I said, what do you want me to preach on? He said, well, we're going through 1 Corinthians. I said, that's fine. He gave me the passage. And uh, I said, what about next Sunday? He said, well, that's like the talk show host says, it's open line Friday. You can preach on anything you want. So I've been set free to cover the topic that I want to cover. And uh, I think the Lord wants me to cover. Uh, we're going to be preaching out of Ephesians 6. You know the passage very well. That's next week, not today. But um, based on Paul's comment to Timothy, 2 Timothy 2.3, when he said, King James Version was, Thou therefore, we don't use thou's anymore, endure hardness as a good soldier of Jesus Christ. That's next week. I have some interesting things to share with you about that. We've got some people who've served in the military. They know a lot more about it than I because I never put on a uniform. I was too young for Korea and too old for Vietnam. And uh, so that's the way uh, it works out. What I'd like you to do today, we're in 1 Corinthians chapter 11. And what I'd like you to do today is take your Bible. If you don't have your Bible, take the Bible that's in a chair in front of you. Or if you have a Bible app on your telephone, use that. But I encourage you to take a Bible, and the other thing I encourage you to do this morning is to make notes. That's what this page in your bulletin is all about. We won't have anything on the screen this morning except that better together. That's been the theme of this study in 1 Corinthians. So that's where we want to go, and I hope that you'll travel with me as we go through this portion of God's word. You know what happens. Sooner or later, in every family, differences arise. Occasionally, the conflict boils over and feelings are hurt. Seldom do we get into a situation where we turn to violence. But let's acknowledge the truth. Strife can lead to hard feelings, which can lead to separation, which can last years. I know families where a mother and her son have had an open feud, or a brother or sister. We know someone where a parent and a child have had that kind of conflict. They haven't spoken to each other for years, and some can't even remember why they don't speak to each other, or at least they claim they cannot. But when we're in the middle, 
it is confusing, hard to understand. But let it be noted that choices we make have consequences. Strong feelings lead to anger from which we may strike out at anyone or anything. Pride steps in and won't allow us to admit any wrong. Sharp differences are hard to mend. Separation goes on and on. Even serious illness or death sometimes won't end the feud. You've seen that. I've seen it on the television news screen. It's been in families. This picture I've just painted is right from our scripture this morning. 1 Corinthians 11. When I got the call from Pastor Tim asking me to preach today, it was prior to the announcement that he and the elders made here on Memorial Day weekend. That decision has affected our church deeply. As I read this scripture in a moment, I think you will realize that conflict in the family of God cannot be papered over. We can't pretend that it's not there and that all is fine, especially in connection with the communion table. So follow with me as I read this text out of 1 Corinthians chapter 11. And bear with me as I get my cheaters. First of all, I have to undo the button. And then I have to dig out my glasses and hope that they're clean enough for me to see. It's great to be 80 years old. <laughs> this is God's word, inspired by his spirit. Chapter 11, 1 Corinthians, verse 17. But in the following instructions, I do not commend you. Because when you come together, it is not for the better, but for the worse. For in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you, and I believe it in part. For there must be factions among you in order that those who are genuine among you may be recognized. When you come together, it's not the Lord's Supper you eat. For in eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry, another gets drunk. What? Do you not have Houses to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I commend you in this? No, I will not. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. 
do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, also he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Whoever, therefore, eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. That is why many of you are weak and ill and some have died. But if we judged ourselves truly, we would not be judged. But when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined so that we may not be condemned along with the world. So then, my brothers, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. If anyone is hungry, let him eat at home. So that when you come together, it will not be for judgment. About the other things, I will give directions when I come. Pray with me. Father, we want to follow your word. For you have commanded us in Scripture to obey you and we know your mind when we read your written word. When we hear the voice of your Holy Spirit speak to us in the same way he spoke to those who have written the inspired word of God. So teach us this morning how then we should live. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I want to ask you how are we to respond to division. In the text I just read, the cause is elitism. We would call it today class warfare. The rich had no regard for commoners in the church. Their selfish ways extended and intruded into the Lord's table. So it was confusing. The series of sermons, Better Together, from 1 Corinthians, will get to these words in chapter 14. I just want to presage what's coming. Chapter 14, verse 33, God is not a God of confusion, but of peace. Well, conflict is anything but peace, and it is confusing and often hard to understand. It's painful that some have chosen to separate 
from us. How are we to go forward in Christ as a church, knowing that others are hurting, even angry, but surely confused? Maybe you're confused. Perhaps this passage at this time has sent me to my knees in prayer more than any time I have preached in the ministry the Lord has entrusted to me. Work through these verses with me, will you? Make notes as we go along. Let's eagerly apply what the Spirit of God says to us as the family of God. He says it to all those who believe in Jesus Christ. Paul was inspired to write these words to the family of God in Corinth 2,000 years ago, and they are valid still today. These folks were in a bad place. Look again at verse 17. He's forthright and doesn't mince words in verse 18. When you come together, it's not for the better, but for the worse. For in the first place, I hear there are divisions among you. And as you study the next several verses, he clearly identified the cause. Verse 22, the poor were ignored by the well-to-do. Now, having a lot of money or just having little or no money should not distinguish believers from one another. Remember, there is no Jew nor Greek, no slave nor free, no male nor female. We are all one in Christ. Jesus said, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. He extended his healing and help and salvation to the helpless, the poor, the meek. And so must we. So when Paul told the church in Corinth that it was not the Lord's Supper that they observed when they came together, you know there are real serious problems and they're out of line with God's word. Now, the fellowship meal that we observe as part of our threefold communion, and today we're not going to observe the threefold communion, but we will the bread and the cup as we finish our worship. That is the meal that Paul referenced in his rebuke here. They neither, neither provided for nor recognized believers who had little. They just went right ahead and ate. And some got drunk. Can you believe it? Others went hungry. Look at the beginning of verse 22. He asks, what? Do you not have houses to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God? and humiliate those who have nothing? This church was a mess. We don't want to be a mess. We don't want to humiliate others. And it appears that Corinth didn't even know it. Thus Paul wrote to them. Now, in Ephesians, Paul wrote that we are one in Christ. I've already mentioned it. There's no difference between any types or 
genders or races or heritage or anything else. He said in Ephesians 4, we ought to be eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Remember, God is a God of peace. Let's maintain that unity in the bond of peace. And then he goes on, we are one body, have one spirit, one hope, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, and one God, our Father. What causes believers to move so far away from God's design for his family? Keep in mind that thought of unity of the body of Christ. Look with me at the division in Corinth, the confusion that resulted from it, and the abuse of the body of Christ. Strife causes separation and ruptures unity. So let's examine the three ways this passage of God's Word teaches us to reflect the peace of Christ among us. I must say this, it is not my place to address the facts or recent actions that have brought us to this time. That is for the pastor and the elders to speak when and as they deem appropriate. My purpose here today is to examine the word as it pertains to the fellowship of believers in the church. So let's dig into this and learn that believers must trust the Lord to guide those who are shepherds of the sheep. Now that's true when the road is easy. And it's also true when it gets dark and difficult and hard. It's because of the Word of God that we don't need any more information to trust the elders and the pastor. We need to pray for them, asking God to lead them by His Word and Spirit. And I pray that when we come to the end of this discussion, that you will see the things that underscore this concept more fully as we proclaim the gospel by partaking of the Lord's Supper. Let's think first about division. The word for division Paul uses in this passage, in the original language of the New Testament, the first word that comes up as I hear there are divisions among you. That word in the New Testament language, Greek, is schizo. An idea what that means? We think of it as schism, or you take it directly and it becomes a combination with schizophrenic. It's a loss of mind control, that kind of division. It sounds like schism because it's a direct, what we call a transliteration. You just carry it from Greek to English. 
We've done that with baptizo, which is the Greek word. We call it baptism. Same thing. Mostly schisms are deep doctrinal divides, but not always. In the first chapter of this book, Paul used that same word to describe what was happening by those who followed Paul, those who followed Apollos, those who followed Peter, those who even claimed, I follow Christ. Look at me. If the ESV transliterated the Greek word the Holy Spirit selected in verse 19 as factions to characterize their behavior, that word would be transliterated heresies. Now that takes it to another level, doesn't it? The divisiveness in Corinth, especially here in chapter 11, was heretical in the sense that it excluded some people from the oneness of the Lord's Supper, which is found in the bread and the cup, as instituted by Jesus Christ himself. It denies the unity of the body. It's heresy. That's what Scripture names it. So I'm not making up words. You don't commit heresy only by belief in a doctrine that's wrong. You practice something wrong, and that's committing heresy. So this divided believers, you're the wealthy, you're the poor, no interaction. Ignore them because you're wealthy. Is that what we want in the church? It divided believers who are one in Christ in position, but are we denying that position? It created chaos and confusion. Division impacts our relationships with each other. It impacts our relationship with Christ, and it affects adversely our relationship with a righteous and transcendent God. In chapter 8, Paul began a discussion of idols. And that continued into chapter 10. You'll remember those lessons. Paul noted that knowledge can puff up when people think they know what others don't. They get a little prideful attitude. But that love builds up. When practice doesn't match doctrine, it produces more confusion. And out of confusion, abuse of the body takes place. Heresy affects the purity in the church. You remember, I'm sure, that Paul connected the relationship of husband and wife with the unique purity of the church in Ephesians chapter 5. Turn several pages back to Ephesians chapter 5, please. I want to read 
this verse which is well known to you. And while you're turning there, let me begin. Chapter 5, verse 25. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. That he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish, sacrificial death, the Lord gave himself up for her, the church, to secure for him a bride without spot or wrinkle, holy, without blemish. But you know his bride tarnishes her purity when she fails to obey God's word, to please God. In 1 Thessalonians 4, and don't turn to it, you might make a note. That's one of the things you could jot down. 1 Thessalonians 4, Paul stresses two commands. One, please God. More and more. And the second is to love one another more and more. He's building on the commands of Jesus himself. Obey his commands and love each other continuously, unceasingly, no matter what may occur. I must hurry along to the paragraph beginning in 1 Corinthians 11, verse 23. Here we're going to get into what I call the ABCs of church life. 1 Corinthians 11.23, Paul says, I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you. I don't know if you grasp the significance of that, but when he says, I received from the Lord. This was not merely his idea. He received it directly from the Lord. You know he met the Lord on the road to Damascus when he was saved, rescued from his own sin. And knowing that, it's not too hard to believe that Paul had other revelations directly from Jesus Christ. In fact, he talks about them in 2 Corinthians chapter 12. He mentioned visions and revelations of the Lord. And he said, there was a man, I don't know, in the body or out of the body, who was caught up into the third heaven. Most scholars of Scripture believe that is autobiographical by Paul, that it is his experience. He cannot tell of it. It was so sacred to him. So the point is that he received 
authority. That's the A. He received authority and he passed it along. He learned what Jesus did at the Passover. We call it the Last Supper. When he took the bread and broke it and gave it to his disciples and he took the cup also and when he blessed it, he gave it to them as a representation of the new covenant in my blood. Luke, both the writer of the third gospel who recorded words like that in his gospel and a traveling companion and the scribe of Paul and his evangelistic team probably also was able to instruct Paul on the words of Jesus. And in either case, however the Lord spoke to Paul, whether it was directly or through Luke or through other apostles or any other way, by the Holy Spirit, we know the Holy Spirit inspired these words. So whatever that authority of the Word of God, spoken, written, is handed down to all those who are in authority in the church. In our case, it's the pastor and the elders. And we are to listen and heed their counsel and decisions. This authority was exercised by the apostles and the elders. We have some examples in the New Testament. I would like you to turn to Acts chapter 5. Make a note, Acts chapter 5, and you may want to read the whole thing later. You know the story. It's a couple named Ananias and Sapphira. Ananias came into the church and made a gift of land and lied to Peter because they held back a portion of the price they received for the land. And God struck him dead at Peter's feet. And a couple of hours later, his wife, oblivious to what had happened, came into the church and Peter asked, did you receive this for such and such and give such and such? Yes, sir, we did. Look at verse 9 and 10, Acts chapter 5. Luke records this. Peter's response, how is it that you have agreed together to test the spirit of the Lord? Behold, the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door, and they will carry you out. And immediately she fell down at his feet and breathed her last. What would happen if that occurred today? You would quake in fear. And so did these people. Look at verse 11. Great fear came upon the whole church and upon all who heard of these things. There's another less dramatic example I want you to see in Acts chapter 15, just a few pages back. 
You know about the Jerusalem Council in which apostles and elders from all over came to Jerusalem to debate whether or not circumcision would be required for salvation among the Gentiles. The scripture says, verse 7, chapter 15 of Acts, after much debate, Peter and James addressed the council. And then James gave the decision, and we go on to verse 22. Look at that, please. Then it seemed good to the apostles and the elders with the whole church. And what happened next? Judaizers, the Greeks, all those who were in the church accepted this decision because it was in the authority of those who were given the responsibility for decisions. And when their letter was read to the congregation in Antioch, what does it say? They rejoiced because of its encouragement. So the Word of God gives us reason to receive and follow the Word of elders. They've been ordained to lead, and they carry the authority of the head of the church, and we are to follow them, for Peter says they must give account to the chief shepherd. And James, also who stood up and gave the decision in Jerusalem, James says they will be subject to a stricter judgment. So don't take on the responsibility of elder if you're expecting a free ride. This submits you to the possibility of stricter judgment than those around you. James says, you ought to be careful whether you want to become a teacher of the word because that's what happens when you assume that role. So the question arises. You're probably asking yourself, does it mean they're always right? I don't have the answer to that. Can they be challenged? Well, 1 Timothy 5.1 says, Rebuke not an elder, but exhort him as a father. You just think how you would approach your father. Those of you who have a father, those of you who remember your father, and some of you, like me, had a father who exercised pretty strict discipline. And I wouldn't have dared to rebuke him. But to exhort him as a father, it would be to appeal to him. To say, Dad, have you thought about this? I implore every one of you to approach those the Lord has called as elders and pastor with humble respect and recognition for their place as the Lord's anointed. There's no room for pride and arrogance in them 
or in the church. You're going to see that in just a moment. Humility, as modeled by the Lord himself, is our standard. 21st century culture is crude, it's rude, it's arrogant, it's in your face. We've seen it too graphically on our television news this week. We see it every day and in every aspect of our lives. I must say, we cannot bring the brash defiance of the world into the church. It does not belong. Another passage I'd like you to make a note of and to make a commitment to read in entirety before you lay your head down tonight in sleep. I've taken recently to giving assignments to the churches where I preach. So I'm giving you an assignment now. Galatians chapter 5. You're probably thinking right away, the fruit of the Spirit. Yes, it's there. I want you to back up a couple of verses because in Galatians 5.19, Paul begins to enumerate the works of the flesh. And then in verse 22, he enumerates the fruit of the Spirit there in stark contrast. So read that sometime today, especially verses 19 to 23, but the whole chapter of Galatians 5. Now secondly, among the ABCs, as was discussed several weeks ago in 1 Corinthians 9, we are to bow and surrender our rights to the Lord just as he gave up his rights. You remember those messages I have the right to do this, but I choose not to because I sacrificed myself on your behalf. The Lord Jesus, as explained in Philippians 2, we can't take the time to turn there, gave up himself. He emptied himself, took on the form of a servant. The word really is slave. Authentic surrender to him and submission to those in authority in the church is a cardinal tenet of church and body life for the believer. It's not abject obeisance. It's thoughtful obedience. Romans 12, 1 and 2, I beseech you, I beg of you, Paul writes, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, which is your spiritual worship. I'm called to do that. You're called to do that if you're a believer. Thirdly, the sea. God's word commands us to obey. Jesus said, all authority is given to me in heaven and earth. Go and do what I command you. 
We call it the Great Commission. And he gave us a new commandment, which we read every time we have threefold communion. A new commandment I give to you, John 13, 34, that you love one another. And by this shall all men know you are my disciples, that you do love one another. And he went on in John 15 and verse 14, you are my friends if you do what I command you. Next week, we're going to look at this whole question of command. And believe me, it has nothing to do with the subject matter of this subject today. It has to do with our place before Jesus Christ and what, how we live as his believers, his friends. Here's another assignment. Take a moment to read Peter's words in the fifth chapter of his first epistle, 1 Peter 5. If you turn there, you may choose not to, but I hope you do. 1 Peter chapter 5, I'm going to start reading in verse 2. You can catch up with me when you get there. 1 Peter 5, 2. Shepherd the flock of God, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly, as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. I ask you, to whom is he speaking? To whom is this addressed? Pardon? To elders. It starts out, I exhort the elders. He's speaking to elders. Notice how he widens his focus in verse 5. Likewise, you who are younger, the implication is younger in the faith, not necessarily younger in years, chronological age. You who are younger, be subject to the elders. Can anybody tell me when that sentence was deleted from Scripture? Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another. For God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. And the following verses add more emphasis to that concept of humility which is unique to Jesus Christ and his followers. This is how we are known as his friends that we love one another, that we please God. We are under authority, A. We bow, B, in surrender to Him. Three, C, we obey His commands. These are the ABCs of being disciples 
of Jesus Christ. We're going to share in the communion of the body and the blood of Jesus Christ in just a few moments. We're going to eat bread and drink the cup, both emblems of his body broken and his blood poured out for our salvation. But before we do, I want to read again, beginning in verse 23 of this passage in 1 Corinthians. So please come back to that because this is fundamental to what we are about to do. 1 Corinthians 11, verse 23. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Continue with me, please. Verse 27, whoever, therefore, eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and the blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then, and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. That is why many of you are weak and ill, and some have died. But if we judged ourselves truly, we would not be judged. But when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined so that we may not be condemned along with the world. I'm going to stop there for the moment. I want to be absolutely faithful to God's word. Some of these believers were sick and some had died because they failed to judge themselves. That is, they didn't look honestly into their heart and say, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. They didn't look into their heart truly and acknowledge their thoughts, their attitudes, their heart before God. And they weren't drinking and eating worthily. And God had to discipline them. There's a difference between Judgment and condemnation. Don't get thrown by the word condemnation in this. It's only used in connection with verse 
32. If we're judged by the Lord, we're disciplined so that we may not be condemned along with the world. There's therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Jesus Christ. Does he discipline us? Yes. Do we face the discipline of God's word? And could it be illness? Could it even be death? So when you take this bread and this cup, the sense of the meaning in this passage is that you prove yourself You take your test inwardly. You look inside yourself, as it were, to validate yourself before the Lord. And if you find any sin there, you confess it to him right here and now and surrender to him. That's what it means to have a heart change and turn from sin. Eternal condemnation is not in view when you take of the bread and the cup. Maybe discipline, but not condemnation. If you're a child of God, take these next moments. As the deacons come with the preparations and the worship band comes also to help us as we partake of the bread and the cup. So take that phrase, let a person examine himself. I can't do that for you. Only you can examine yourself. Do not be frightened or refrain because you're concerned you have some hidden sin. Take these moments of silence and look into yourself and Commune with your Lord and confess and repent and become worthy to partake of the sacrifice which is a witness to his gospel. Will the worship band come and the deacons please so that as we bow in prayer silently, we prepare ourselves. As the deacons come forward with the bread, let me give thanks for the body of the Lord Jesus Christ. Father in heaven, in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ, we have redemption, forgiveness of sin, 
If we confess our sin, you are righteous altogether to forgive our sin and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness, which makes us worthy to partake of this meal, the body of the Lord Jesus Christ, as symbolized in bread. And as we break it, may we realize that your body was broken for us. Our sin is what caused you to be obedient to the death on the cross, for your body to be beaten and bloodied and pierced, to be broken for us. We give you our thanks. In his name, amen. These are loaves of bread which you can take and break off a piece and eat. This is the body, the bread which we break. It's his body. Do this in remembrance of him. As the deacons come with the cup, I want to pray and give thanks for the cup as an emblem of the blood. We sang, nothing but the blood. Oh, precious is the flow. Father in heaven, we see Christ lifted up upon a cross a Roman cross. He is ridiculed and jeered. He is mocked. And he is pierced. And the blood flows down to the ground. And the life has gone out. But we are thankful that with his authority, he took it up again because he was the perfect Lamb of God. And his blood is the new covenant in which we become part of the family of God. We give you thanks for his obedience, surrender, submission, sacrifice. May we, in like manner, lay ourselves down for him. In his name we pray. Amen. This cup is the new covenant of his blood. Do this as often as you drink in remembrance of him. Having proclaimed the gospel in the bread and the cup, Let us now proclaim it as we sing, remain seated, Jesus paid it all.